Kia ora. You are listening to a 2018 special event podcast from Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi Otamaki. Lee Child's books consistently achieve the number one slot on bestseller lists around the world, with one Jack Reacher novel reportedly sold every nine seconds somewhere on the planet. He is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Crime Writers Association Diamond Dagger for a writer of an outstanding body of crime fiction, the International Thriller Writers Thriller Master Award, and the Thexton Old Peculiar Outstanding Contribution to Crime Fiction Award. The Master of Suspense is in conversation with Jim Mora to celebrate his latest book, Past Tense. This event is supported by Penguin Random House New Zealand. There are a lot of really good, successful thriller writers, and you would know them. It's a bit of a fraternity. I've seen you on stage with um, various people. But they are not mentioned like you are. You know, um, people like Harlan Coben and some of the really good writers, you are mentioned a lot. Jack Reacher, of course, is mentioned a lot. He's entered the, the lexicon, the vocabulary. And I know it's partly because he's invincible, hmm. but it's also partly for lots of other reasons that we may get to some of tonight. He's become a real symbol, and in 50 years' time, they'll be talking about Jack Reacher like we still remember James Bond. Yeah, I mean, it was always uh, it was always my hope that uh, Reacher would be the brand. Reacher would be the thing that was talked about, not me. And we, I remember at the very beginning, we tried to persuade publishers, you know, don't don't worry about the author. It's about the character, because I believe that entertainment as a whole is always about the character. And the proof of that, it, there's numerous ways of proving it. And what I love is the Lone Ranger. Do you remember the Lone Ranger? I do. Everybody remembers the Lone Ranger. There is not a human being alive who could tell you a single storyline from a Lone Ranger episode. <laughs> it's, it's the character that you, that you remember. Character is always supreme. And uh, so I wanted Reacher to be the thing that people talked about, not the author, nothing else. And it, it is kind of like that. And you... It's been fascinating to me, the migration, because obviously, by definition, when I was first writing the first book, I was the only one who had ever heard of him. And then it sort of spread outward, a few readers, a few readers, a few readers, and then it, it passed through a kind of boundary where it wasn't just about the book anymore. It was, he became a metaphor for all kinds of things, um, you know, just in, in relation to nothing much. Somebody in a newspaper column or something, somebody would say, he's the Jack Reacher of whatever. Yeah. And I believe once actually I saw, because of course I'm incredibly vain and Google myself all the time. Um, <laughs> I, I, he had been mentioned in the New Zealand Parliament. Um, somebody was making a speech and he said, um, as Jack Reacher would say, we must hope for the best but plan for the worst. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what book that's in. I think it's in most of them, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were, we were just talking backstage. I'm the last person to ask what's in the books because I... You know, I write them and I move on to the next one, and I never reread them. I never really think about the old books. And so, um, if you want to know something about the old books, it's probably better just to talk amongst yourselves because I'll, I'll forget. You've been in very exalted company in recent weeks. I did some Googling of you, actually, and you've been on stage with Bill Clinton, yeah. with George R.R. R. Martin, Game of Thrones. Um, tonight, you're stuck with me. So, it's. <laughs> 
it's quite a glamorous tour that you've been on so far. It is. And I do want to say thanks, Jim, for doing this because uh, Jim and I go back, go back to those obscure days, or at least the, uh, the less popular days. We, t we talked years ago, remember? Yes. And um, I must have done okay because he's come back. He agreed to do it. <laughs> Before we start, because we're going to do something unusual in the middle, apart from have your questions later, we're going to have a quiz, an audience quiz. And I'd just like just quickly to know who's never read a Jack Reacher book? <laughs> there are people you have to convince tonight. Uh, okay. <laughs> who's read, say, one, two, three, four, and we'll read more? <laughs> right, thank you. Who's read... Most, if not all, of the... Oh, look. Look at that. All right. Yeah, these oh, guys look. can say. Yeah. So I've got some questions to test you yeah. all on later. Can I take you back to the start? And I once went into that stuffy coffee shop in Edinburgh where J.K. Rowling wrote The Philosopher's Stone. And she was a solo parent and she must have been at Desperation's door, and she was looking out at Edinburgh Castle and writing this book that meant absolutely everything to her. I think many of the audience would know some of the circumstances when you yourself lost your job and were presumably facing a crisis of, well, money more than mm. anything. Can I take you back and ask you how desperate were those early days? How much did it matter to you to get that killing floor published, written and published? Well, yeah, it was absolutely make or break. It was, um, I, I had, a, had a really nice job in television uh, for Granada Television in Manchester, England, which uh, was a fine, fine producer, made Coronation Street, which I know was very popular in New Zealand. And uh, we made Brideshead Revisited, Jewel in the Crown, Prime Suspect, Cracker, some great documentary strands too. It was a wonderful, wonderful place to work. And for instance, I, I was just reminiscing about this last night. Um, my first week at that place, I was 22 years old, or very nearly 23. And I was being trained by a woman who'd been there forever, and she knew everybody. And we got to the end of the week of, of Friday, and she said, today we're going to have lunch with some actors. And I thought, fine, you know, that's, that's great. And it was actually planned to be a picnic lunch. She had ordered hampers, picnic hampers from Fortnum and Mason. And we were supposed to go out and have picnic lunch in a park or something. But don't forget, this was in Manchester, England, where it, <laughs> where it rains continuously. I mean, almost literally. I moved to Manchester in August one year, and it rained every single day until the next April. And so naturally, the outdoor picnic idea was scuppered. And so we sat around on the studio floor uh, with the hampers, uh, me, this woman, and four actors. And they were Ralph Richardson, um, Alec Guinness, wow. John Gielgud, and Laurence Olivier. Jay. <laughs> wow. That, that was my introduction to that job. And it was just the greatest job. I loved every minute of it. Um, and I, I was there until, you know, late on, there came a day where my boss said something to me that made it just impossible for me to continue. He said, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was almost 40, literally days away from being 40. And, um, you know, being thrown out of work at 40 is, is a drag. It's a really bad time because... Yeah. 
the, the labor market is changing. Everybody wants uh, young people, cheap people. And, uh, you know, I was halfway through this career and you, you accumulate stuff. I had a mortgage. I had uh, a 15-year-old daughter who was probably going to require educating at a university or something. Um, I had credit cards and all that kind of thing. And um, they give you money when they kick you out. They gave me a certain severance payment. And I paid off the credit cards and it left me with enough in the bank for seven mortgage payments. Seven. So it, this had, I had to do something within seven months. Otherwise, uh, I was going to be in severe trouble. And I just didn't really want to leave the world of entertainment. I just always loved that proposition that you do something and it makes people happy. That's all I wanted to do. Really dating back to the Beatles, you know. Ideally, I wanted to be in the Beatles, but um, <laughs> that never worked out for me. But I loved that proposition, you know, I just... Because I'm old enough to remember when the Beatles burst on the scene um, in, back in 1963 when Beatlemania started up. And it was just wonderful. It, it, the joy, the happiness, it, the intensity of that experience, it hooked me completely. I wanted to do something that made other people feel great for an hour or a day or whatever. And I did not want to leave that world. So how could I stay in that world? It was very hard because I had these very, very specialized skills that were absolutely tailored to the job that I'd just been thrown out of. Yeah. And um, they weren't applicable to anything else. So I thought, what can I do? And then I just really, it was an epiphany. All my life I had been a reader, just loved reading. Partly because in the early days there was nothing else to do. Uh, I'm certain there are people here who were born in Britain, probably about my age, and emigrated here at some point. And you probably remember that post-war Britain, post-war Britain lasted until the Beatles, basically. Uh, the war did not end until 1963. Um, it was grey, it was boring, there was austerity. It was, for a kid, it was especially horrible because we felt like... Uh, there's no disputing Britain's triumph in World War II was a gigantic achievement in history. You know, you can't possibly dispute that, but it was a drag for a kid because history was over. History had happened already. Yeah. There was nothing for us. So I just wanted to, I, uh, when the Beatles came along, it exploded. I fell in love with the idea of entertainment. What could I do that, to keep me there? And having read all my life, uh, loved books instinctively. I just loved them. I, I read tens of thousands of books. and But curiously, oddly, I had never considered where they came from. I just thought they were there. You know, they were there in the library. I had no concept that somebody was writing them or publishing them. But then later on, literally, I was probably 35 before I figured, oh, yeah, you know, somebody actually does this. And I, I thought vaguely, well, I'd like to do it too. Because that's another thing about me that if I really enjoy something, I want to be doing it too. Uh, which is generally very frustrating because I, I, I slowly and reluctantly accepted I will never play centre forward for Aston Villa uh, and so on. But I You're felt, still in good neck. Yeah, but I've, you know, I've yeah. just got no physical talents. All I, all I can do is think. And so I thought, I've enjoyed books. Maybe I could do this. And there was one particular series of books, the Travis McGee series by John D. MacDonald, a very famous series about, uh, about a guy in Florida. And 
I loved those books for entertainment. They were really good, solid books. Uh, but also for me, somehow, maybe it was the right place, the right time sort of thing. I, they were like a blueprint to me. I could see what he was doing and why he was doing it. And I thought, oh, okay, this is how you do it. And um, so I, I thought, maybe I'll do that one day. And then when I got thrown out of work, I realized you, this is the time. You either put up or shut up. Um, try it. See what happens. So I wrote that first book, Killing Floor, in pencil. And I still have the pencil. Um, wow. You know, it started out like a regular pencil, and it ended up this this long by the time I'd finished it. And uh, I've still got it. And it's a famous pencil. Uh, it, I have it in a little... Um, it's in a little tube in my office, preserved, and it's been FedExed all around the world because magazines get obsessed by it and they want to photograph it. So I FedEx it to wherever and they photograph it and FedEx it back. So I've still got the, the pencil. And so I wrote that book and it, exactly like J.K. Rowling, you know, this was not a hobby. It was not a, a thing that I, I sort of kind of wanted to do. It had to work. And... Um, I think that makes a big difference. Probably she would say the same thing. It makes a big difference. This is, it's not a hobby. It has got to work. And so that really focuses you. And that is my number one tip for aspiring writers. Quit your job and give your money away. <laughs> <laughs> then you will concentrate. And uh, so the first book, um, yeah, that was so important. And I... I I love that book. I'm not saying it's any good or what, but I, I'm saying I just love it because it was the it was the crucial thing. I I finished it. It worked, and um, and looking back on it, uh, it was an achievement, and it started this whole thing. And what a thing it started! And I've got to ask you because this is the point Stephen King made to you. I saw on YouTube, you and he on stage, and he made the point that you made Reacher wholly original. You know, Reacher, he was tough. He couldn't be beaten. That was one thing. Mm -hmm. But also, he traveled light. You know, he only... I don't want to give away one of the answers to the question. <laughs> he didn't have much with him when he traveled. <laughs> um, you know, you had a lot of original elements. And you also had that kind of God element of him reaching into people's lives and saving them. Did, so were they all there from the get-go? When you sat down at and got your little pencil out that first day. Were you thinking along those lines right from the start? Well, in a way, I, I was trying not to think about it because um, having worked so long in entertainment, one of the things you learn very quickly is that you cannot design a success. You can't sit down and sort of check boxes and say, I need this, and I need this, and I need this, and then it's going to work. It just never works like that. If you try that, it's an automatic failure. you just got to do it instinctively and organically. But there was a slight element of calculation in it, in that obviously one of the really difficult things is how to stand out, how to be different, yeah. how to be distinctive. And I was very aware that everybody else... It, in this genre, basically writes what you would call a soap opera. And I do not mean that in any denigrating way whatsoever. Soap opera uh, put food on my table for 20 years. Uh, soap opera is a, is a really sophisticated and powerful narrative engine. 
And soap opera audiences are very sophisticated audiences. They can follow multiple tracks that are sometimes months apart before they reoccur. There's nothing wrong with soap operas, but everybody else was doing one where the hero was a detective with colleagues and subordinates and superiors and neighbors, and they lived somewhere and they maybe had a dog and they had a favorite bar and all this kind of stuff. Everybody was doing that. So I wanted to strip all that away and do something completely different, which was given up quite a lot because, like I say, soap opera is very powerful. Uh, it spreads the load. You know, if there's a repertory cast of several recurring characters, then uh, the reader has got more than one person to like. Uh, my daughter, for instance, reads Patricia Cornwell, the Case Scarpetta series. And I said to her, really? You like Case Scarpetta? And she said, no, I like Lucy. You know, <laughs> right. it, it, there's, it, it, it's going back to the Beatles. You know, there were four of them. Everybody had their favorite. It's, it spreads a responsibility. And so I gave all of that up. And it was all about one guy who it, it was not location based. It was not employment based. It was one guy homeless, doesn't have a job, uh, wanders around. Uh, it was all down to him. So there was a little element of calculation in getting rid of what everybody else was doing. But then it was it was about metaphorically closing my eyes and just writing and seeing what came out. In fact, my handwriting is so bad with the pencil, you could probably say it was like I literally closed my eyes. <laughs> Has it helped that you look the part? I, I think he looks the part, don't you? <laughs> I heard you. I heard Kim Hill talking to you on radio the other day, and you were both talking about um, who should play Reacher on screen now because it won't be Tom Cruise anymore, even though he's <laughs> <laughs> even though he's the exact physical facsimile of <laughs> Reacher. And I immediately, I was listening to the radio, and I immediately thought, Lee Child is Reacher. I mean, you're not wide enough, but you're tall enough and you've got the look, and you were a bit of a fighter in your younger days, yeah, actually. I was Reacher in the past, yeah. when I was about eight or nine. Um, <laughs> I was totally Reacher then, because I, I was big. I was a big kid. I, uh, uh, my family was really odd. My elder brother was a tiny, scrawny guy, tiny, a, a real emaciated little nerd. And, um, and then I was huge. I mean, literally, my elder brother's three years older than me, and I was bigger than him by the time I was about six months old. <laughs> and um, I loved fighting. And Birmingham, Birmingham, England was, uh, and this was a long time ago, because sadly, I'm very old now. So you have to look back. And it was a wholly different world. Um, Birmingham was an industrial town, manufacturing city, very plain people, very emotionally inarticulate. And every single dispute of any kind between um, adults or children was all about violence. It was all about fighting. Everything was instinctively a fight. Yeah. I mean, I remember, and shamefully, this is a shameful admission, my very first day at primary school, um, in the reception class. And this was long enough ago that we had slates. We didn't have paper. You had, um, a, a, you had a slate and some chalk. And the teacher said, draw a picture of a crocodile. And so we all drew a picture of a crocodile. And the kid sitting behind me, he was called Robert Eaves. I remember him very well. Uh, he, he said his crocodile was better than mine. So I turned around and punched him in the face. Ah. <laughs> that's, how it, that's how it was. And... Um, and then, 
and I was huge, and I, and and uh, that made me fearless in a way, which was um, and being fearless is ninety percent of the battle. It really is. If if you look like you're not scared, mostly people leave you alone. And um, but there was a lot of this violence going on, and I I ran by the time I was about eight. I was running what could technically be described as a protection racket. Um, although, really, I, reg- I, I, I would prefer to think of it as a kind of mutual aid society. Yes, yes. yes. What would happen is um, we didn't have very much money, and so we uh, we never had uh, our mother never sent us to school with any food, and the kids that had, had more, the ki- some kids came with biscuits. I don't know why, but they had biscuits or cookies that sent with them. And the deal was, if you gave me your biscuits, then I would look after you if you had a problem. And and I did that numerous times. You know, some kid in, that was getting bullied or something like that, who was a member of the subscription scheme, she would come to me <laughs> and say, I've got this problem with this other guy. And then so after school, I would follow this other guy home, take care of it. And... Um, <laughs> And uh, you know, I was—I loved it. I was really, really good at it. And it was—it was—it uh, was a tough. I mean, seriously, it was a tough neighborhood. I'll tell you. I mean, I—I I, and this is how bad I am. I saw. I mean, we had knives and we had bicycle chains. Uh, that, there were no guns involved because it was Britain, but it, we had knives and bicycle chains. But then I, ju- I was just last year in a mountaineering shop. God knows why, but I was. I was in a mountaineering shop, and I saw this thing called a Norwegian saw, which I'd never seen before. And what it was, it was the chain of a chainsaw with a little wooden toggle on both ends. And the idea was you threw it around a tree and went like this, and you could cut down the tree. It's like camping equipment. And I thought, oh my God, if I had had that when I was a kid, <laughs> I would have loved it. But. Um, yeah, so I, I was totally reached when I was eight and nine, and people always ask me, uh, you know, how come the fight scenes are so detailed? Well, yeah. that's just memory. <laughs> uh, the woman who cuts my hair, who <clears throat> likes your books, also likes Marion Kieselot, um, she said, will you please ask Lee Child if there's a little bit of a psychopath in him? <laughs> well, it's very hard to self-diagnose, you know. Who's, who's going to ever say yes to that? But... Um, I think probably sociopath would be better uh, than psychopath. But it, I, I felt it was just a binary world. It was black and white. You were either right or wrong. And if you were wrong, you took the consequences. And that is what Reacher is like. Um, you know, many times he says, uh, you know, it's a, it's a forbidden door. If you push it open, what comes out is your problem. Yeah. And I'm like that. Um, if I'll, I'm completely peaceable. I would never pick on anybody. I'm never proactive about it. I have, I'm never aggressive towards another person. But if they're aggressive towards me, then I don't, I don't like proportionate response. It, you know, if they're aggressive towards me, I can guarantee you it'll only happen once. I can see why you came up with Jack Reacher. I so can. <laughs> yeah. um, have you ever... I know you were talking about who might play Reacher on screen in the future, and I also thought of Sonny Bill Williams. I don't know if you know him. Because <laughs> it's got to be somebody. Is there anybody in the audience who thinks they could play Jack Reacher? Well, seriously, I think that, I mean, this is um, the Tom Cruise thing, from my point of view, was, uh, you know, at the time, 
it, and it was 13 years ago that we did this deal. And uh, it's basically a, a yes, no choice. Do you want a movie or not? And I love the movies. And, and so I thought it would be great. Some little thing that I've done is in the world of movies. So I said, sure. And, um, but, and you sort of basically yield most control over most things. And so it ended up with, with Tom Cruise doing it. And here's the main problem from a writer's perspective. I didn't care because to me, the book is the thing. The book is the ultimate product. The book cannot be altered. It cannot be developed. It can't be improved. The book is it. And the movie or whatever else spin-off type of thing you're doing is at best peripheral. You know, it's just something way off to the side. It can't possibly alter the, uh, the book. So I was very, very uh, relaxed about who did it. As far as I was concerned, Katie Holmes could have done it. Um, <laughs> I just really didn't mind. But that was a terrible, terrible miscalculation because I feel I let the readers down. You know, the readers wanted to see um, something that was more true to the book. And yeah. I, I, I understood that very, very quickly. And believe me, I've had seven years now of um, <laughs> I've been... Uh, I mean, it's impossible. You should see my Facebook page. Whatever is ever said, you know, whatever it is, uh, happy Thanksgiving, because today is a Thanksgiving in America. Happy Thanksgiving, I say on my Facebook page. The first comment is, why did he let Tom Cruise play Jack Reason? <laughs> <laughs> and um, as a matter of fact, Tom Cruise is a really nice guy, and we had a lot of fun. And it, all that stuff you read about him in tabloids and magazines, none of it is true. He's a really, really nice guy. He's a great actor. He works really, really hard. Uh, he's a great thinker about storytelling. He is Working with him was terrific, but he's not very big. And, uh, you know, it was, it, was a mis it was a mistake. And... Um, it was uh, probably the movies I thought as movies were fine. You know, sure. the first one was I thought really stylish and solid, and the second one was good. And uh, for, for the sort of movie that you watch on a plane or something, it was great. But uh, Tom Cruise was, the readers were disappointed by Cruise. And as much as I like Cruise as a person and as an actor, my loyalty obviously is with the readers. So there was a wonderful clause in my contract that said, after two movies, I have a veto whether there will be any more. Ah. And so I thought, no, there will not be any more. Wow. Um, we're gonna do binge watching type television with, um, with a hu huge actor. <laughs> 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 And what I really, really want, because people were very, very uh, ready to express their displeasure about Cruise, I want to involve everybody. Every single reader should be involved. They should suggest people. They should say, do they want a completely unknown person? Um, if we get down to a short list, they should give their opinion. Every single reader should be involved in this because... If we get it wrong again, it's going to be your fault. <laughs> you know, past tense, I can't really talk about it without giving the game away for people who haven't read it. But what it shows is that you're still completely on your game. It's a very good book. It's a very good Reacher book. My question is, you've talked about how important it was. We can see the motivation that you had way back when with The Killing Floor. What drives you now? Because you could just completely 
relaxed by a pool in the south of France, write a book every 10 years if you felt like it? Uh, well, I do some relaxing, you know, but it's uh, what it is now, it's it, the contract has shifted. You know, as you say, uh, at the beginning, it was it was a financial necessity. It was essentially a, a financial contract in my head. I needed to make a living. And then happily, I did. You know, it was it's just been unbelievable. It's been an absolute dream of a career. So why do I continue doing it? It's now morphed into an emotional contract with the people that made it happen. You know, uh, people like Jack Reacher. They want another Jack Reacher book every year. And so on an emotional level, um, how can I deny them that? You know, if they want it, I'm their servant in a way. I, seriously, I believe it. This it's, reading is a very strange thing. Writing and reading is different than any other form of entertainment. If you're watching television or a movie or listening to music or whatever it may be, you're essentially a passive spectator. You're sitting there and the thing is coming at you and washing over you. If you're reading a book, it's a whole different thing. In a, in a very complex existential way. Because what I do is I make strange black marks on white paper. And then some months later or years later, or even decades later, maybe after the author is dead, a reader will scan her eyes over those strange black marks. And a very close facsimile of my imagination appears in her head. But it's crucial, it's in her head at this point. Uh, the reader is creating the story. It's the reader's mental energy that is being consumed, literally. The reader's calories are being burned. The reader is creating that story. And therefore, it's a collaboration. We're locked together. The writer and the reader is a two-way street. First of all, a book is written, then a book is read, and then it exists. And so we're in this together. Uh, the readers have, have created the Jack Reacher success. And so I feel like I'm the servant to the reader. If they want another Jack Reacher book, it's up to me to give it to them. Why would I say no? It's, um, it's perverse to say no. And a question I get a lot is, do you want to write something else other than Jack Reacher? Or would you? And um, I think that would be a ridiculous thing to do because you all want another Jack Reacher book. So a Lee Child book comes out, and if it's not about Jack Reacher, you're going to think, what is, what's going on here? Um, you know, that, the transaction, the loop falls apart at that point. So, yeah, to me now, it's an emotional contract. People, people get pleasure from the books, and my, all I want to do is give them pleasure. So I, I carry on doing it. You could write one with a hero, Jack Reacher. <laughs> yeah. Possible, yeah. You're in writing season now, aren't you? This is this is your writing time. So how do you write and tour at the same time? Are you going to go back to your hotel tonight and write a chapter? What are you going to do? No, certainly not. I'm going out to dinner with some very old friends tonight. But um, I don't write on the road be simply because... Um, maybe it's just me. I know lots of writers who do. You know, they'll write on the plane and everything, but I don't because I have this thing where if I know that I've got to stop at some particular time, you know, 4 o'clock or 6 o'clock or whatever, then um, the whole day becomes kind of paralyzed. It's almost not worth getting into um, a particular thought or strand or scene. You think, oh, it's not worth it because I'm going to have to stop soon. Yeah. So if I've got something else to do that day, I don't write at all. So I'm not writing during this three-week tour, but I will, I'll get back to it as soon as I get home. 
And of course, I do always start on September the 1st. So I've done two months of it. I'm a third of the way through next year's book. It's called Blue Moon. And um, I have no idea what it's about because I haven't finished it yet. <laughs> I never have a plan. I don't have an outline. I don't know what the ending is going to be. I, I just let that emerge. And so I know what's happened so far, but I don't know what's going to happen in the end. Uh, but it's pretty good so far. Is it set, okay. in, <laughs> is it set in Kentucky? Is that a clue? Uh, actually, it's, it's like if you, and I hope this isn't one of your questions, but if you go back to One Shot, uh, One Shot was set in a city that was never named. Yeah. And Blue Moon is the same. It's set ah. in a city that is never named. Because I didn't want, I wanted it just to be a kind of neutral background. Again, for the reader, the reader creates the story. And so the reader picks up on the physical clues of the city. And the reader then imagines where it might be. And it becomes all the more convincing, I think, to the reader. Do you, obvious question, do you ever get three quarters of the way through a book like that, feeling your way through without a structure, because you're developing it as you go, and think, I'm totally stuck. I've got to go back and change chapter three and four. Well, I, I often get totally stuck, but I never go back and change anything because I feel that would be, um, given that I want the story to be organic and have integrity, I think it would be kind of dishonest and cheating to go back and change it just to make it easier later. So if I get stuck with a real problem, I have the tremendous consolation. It's actually not my problem. It's Jack Reacher's problem. <laughs> <laughs> he can sort it out. And, and that is when you get the most marvelous bit of writing. The, the most marvelous part of writing is something that uh, most people don't consider as work at all. What you do is you, you make a pot of coffee and you go and lie on the sofa for many, many hours until it comes to you what you should do. And people think that that is like uh, not really work, but it really is. That is actually the most important part of the work. That is most of the work. The rest is just typing. It's the thinking that is the fun part. And so that is what, if you were to observe me writing, you would see about half the time I'm laboriously typing with two index fingers. And about the other half of the time, I'm lying on my sofa in the living room with my eyes closed. But believe me, I am working. That's what I tell everybody anyway. What an amazing creative process of yours. Yeah. The, um, the Guardian newspaper asked a very important question about Jack Reacher, and just let me quote. His lone wolf habits and technophobic attitudes are always a pleasure, but how he maintains fighting fitness on a diet of pancakes, bacon, and coffee <laughs> is one of the world's great mysteries. <laughs> Well, you know, it's also one of the world's great mysteries is, what, is how, how The Guardian is commenting on, on the Reacher books because, um, and that has been, you know, such fun and so hilarious, especially over the last few years where, um, you know, books of this nature, I, I think they're well-crafted. I'm not just talking about my own, but the genre as a whole, I think they're really well-crafted. I know for a fact that the writers that do it work hard and are really smart, intelligent people. And yet they're regarded as these trashy down market things. But uh, recently, all the heavyweights uh, papers have been getting into Jack Reacher. The Guardian, obviously, um, 
you know, the big heavyweight broadsheets, Spectator magazine, Times Literary Supplement. I noticed that, yeah. I mean, I've got an email on my phone now from the editor of the Times Literary Supplement asking me to write something for them. Uh, the New Yorker magazine, which is one of the most erudite magazines in the world, has covered Jack Reacher. Everybody is is seeing quality in Jack Reacher now. And it, in, a, in a random parallel, it, it's a bit like... Uh, football in Britain, you know, football for the longest time was just a down market thing, you know, and it, it got no real comment or coverage at all. And now all the newspapers cover football in incredible depth, you know, dozens of pages in, in each, each paper. And it's the same kind of thing. They're taking proletariat art forms seriously at last, as they should, because, um, and this is something that that I, I often get in trouble for because people ask, you know, people, people imagine that uh, writing these literary novels is somehow harder than writing popular novels. Uh, you know, they, they just say, oh, well, that's just a popular bestseller. And I say, well, what it, do you want to be an unpopular worst seller? Um, you know, why would anybody want to do that? And the sort of, there is no... There's no stakes, essentially, for these literary writers because they write a book and it sells 3,000 copies or whatever. Nobody cares. And so what, what are the stakes for those guys? You know, we have got real people to entertain, hopefully in the millions, and that is a lot harder to do. It's perverse to me to think that something designed to appeal to a very small number of people is harder than something designed to appeal to a very large number of people. It's backward, in my opinion. There are aspects of your writing, because you're starting to talk about writing now, so I'll ask you one writerly sort of question. Jack Reacher uh, in Midnight Line, I think, is in Wyoming on his travels, and you describe thin, clear air, immense tawny plains, nothing moving. He felt all alone on an empty planet. He could imagine hiding out there, seeing no one, no one seeing him, nowhere better. Nice description. How much of a loner are you? How much of Reacher is in you? I think this is an aspect of your books that appeals to people too. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think certainly uh, Reacher's um, approach to right and wrong, you know, his moral compass is mine, and the the desire for you see inside a Reacher, I think, is is a very fundamental um, a very fundamental sort of contradiction that he loves being alone but he's very afraid of being lonely all his life and I, I have a similar sort of contradiction in that I, I, I need hustle and bustle and I need people but I, I absolutely love to be completely isolated and the midnight line said in Wyoming I was able to do the Wyoming thing because I bought a house in Wyoming um, and it is the Wyoming is the physical size of the United Kingdom, the state, and it has the population of maybe Leicester, thinly spread. If you put my, my Wyoming zip code in the U.S. Census Bureau website, literally it comes back saying uninhabited <laughs> because it, it really is. Um, I, the place I bought, you've got to drive 11 miles before you find a paved road. 
Um, so I love that kind of isolation. But at the same time, I love uh, the hustle and bustle in New York City, where the population density is 100,000 people per square mile. Uh, I like both places, but I, I do like the loneliness and the isolation. Because I'm a very solitary person by nature. If my wife is not home and she's... she. My wife is from New York City, and um, she hates it, hates the city, too noisy, too hustly for her. So she loves the English countryside. So we have a farm in England where she spends most of her time. And I've got to tell you, that is the, the secret to a long and happy marriage. Live on separate continents. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm often alone uh, and I, especially when I'm working, you, it's much better to be alone when you're writing because you, you're completely uninterrupted. And I can go literally four, five, six days without saying a word. And I love that. I really do. I thought, I thought as much mm. when I read that line. <laughs> Have you ever written a Jack Reacher book that did well, and they're always well-reviewed, that you didn't like as much as the others? Uh, you know, you don't, I don't like any of them as much as I hoped that I would. Uh, and that is, you, you get the question, the reverse of that question is, which is your favorite? And my favorite is always the, the one I'm about to start. Because no book ever comes out as well as you would want it to. There's always something wrong with it. Um, and yet the new one, the one you're about to start, uh, it, could be, it could be the one. Uh, basically, I haven't screwed it up yet. So this could be the one. Uh, but I've, looking back on them, uh, you know, you mentioned Hook Hobie and Tripwire. I tended to, in the early days, I tended to add just one too many things to it. Hook Hobie, you know, he had a hook for a hand, but he, his face was also burned. And I'm thinking, I should have left out the face. You know, the hand is bad enough. So I, in the early ones, I probably lighted it on too much. And uh, I, I calmed down about that in the later ones. I don't, I can't really say that, that one, I was disappointed in any of them because I would have written it differently. I think I would have made it better. But uh, certainly, I, in, in, a, in a Birmingham sort of way, those people that know Birmingham, England, it was an, an artisan town. You know, people made things and they made them well, as well as they could. And they took a certain amount of pride in it. And I feel that way. I think they're all totally satisfactory. But I'm still waiting to, to write the, the great book. And the problem with that is if I do, then you, you're over. You know, you've written the great book. What can you do next? So I would you've written lots of great books. Well, they're, they're okay, but they're not, they don't achieve perfection for me. And if I, if I ever got a perfect book, then I would think, all right, I'm done. You know, I'm out. It's a, it's a mic drop moment, and I'm, I'm off to the beach. Wow. Yeah. So you're trying to write Moby Dick or something? Well, it's, I mean, it's, has anybody actually ever read Moby Dick? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, it's one of those books like Ulysses. Um, there, Ulysses must have sold a million copies or whatever, and I bet three people have actually finished it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you're right. I'm going to go to audience questions in about five minutes. I want to ask you another obvious thing, and that's Reacher's age. He starts off at 36, he gets a bit older, um, maybe nudging 50 in one of the books and a few indeterminate ages. What are you going to do with them now? Yeah, that's a real, I mean, that is a real tough one. And that is the, um, 
the price of, of, the, of it working because, you know, you write the first book and um, I made him 36. You should be in your own quiz. That is very, most people don't remember that. Richard was, Richard was 36 in the first book. And I did that as a, as a homage or a tribute to Dick Francis. Anybody remember Dick Francis? Yeah. Enjoy those books. I love those books. Um, and, and Dick himself is a really nice man. I just loved him. And technically speaking, Dick did not write a series. But they actually he did because every hero certainly had a different name, but they were all the same guy. Um, <laughs> They were all retired national hunt jockeys, age 36. <laughs> so as a tribute to Dick, I made Reach at 36 in the first book, which is kind of necessary because he's got to be an adult. He's got to be a person of substance. And you can't start with him age seven. You know, you can't have Jack Reach a boy detective. In the, so he, he was 36. And then I, I like all all naive writers with good intentions I intended to age him honestly so in the second book he was 37 and then 38 and which is safe enough because the the chances of having a long-running series are practically zero so I thought fine but then it, it became long-running which gives me a severe problem because um, you know he can't do that kind of stuff if he gets too old he, unless he's beating people to death with his Zimmer frame you know <laughs> what, what are we going to do so there are a number of prequels that mean, which are great because it means it, in real time he doesn't have to get any older that year. And uh, there are, I think, three novels that are back to back to back, taking place within days of each other instead of a year apart. Yes. And so I figure he's probably 50, early 50s, something like that, which I think is okay because when, if I really concentrate hard and remember back to my own early 50s, I, I felt pretty good then. I it didn't feel much different than, than I'd felt generally. I mean, now, obviously, I'm a complete physical disaster. But back then, early 50s, I think it's plausible that he could do what he does. But, uh, yeah, it's a really tricky one because all I do now is I really just don't mention it much. I just gloss over it. Yeah, um, which works quite nicely, if you don't mind my saying so. Yeah, and it actually brings it, it brings the question of of reach the whole reach of series. Obviously, the stories and um, the, the the environment and the setting of the book is is real and contemporary. You know, it's sort of realist um, stuff is going on in real places with and there's cars and there's this and that. It's obviously contemporary, but also Reacher is is heavily based on myth and legend. Uh, you know, he's a mythic figure from from way back in history, the, the the knight errant. And so in a way, I probably could get away with it just having him ageless because that is part of being mythic, you know, that you, you are basically outside of the mainstream. Um, and, of course, that's what a lot of writers do. Uh, if you analyze Robert B. Parker, for instance, the Spencer books, you know, Spencer fought in the Korean War, and so technically he must be about 107 by now, and nobody seems to mind. But So I've sort of backed off mentioning how old Reacher is, although I do try, just to shake it up a little bit, I try to make him... Um, which book was it where... He, um, I can't remember which book it was. A recent book, he gets hit in the head and gets a headache. Uh, you know, I try and make him, I'm trying aging a little bit just to keep him slightly realistic. But Reacher will never be really realistic because he is fundamentally mythic. There's no arthritis yet, though. 
You don't want that. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, you know, that sort of arthritis and short sight. I mean, um, but, I, you know, just just flashed into my head then about short sight. I've got to tell you this. This is totally, totally typical of my life. Um, since I was here last time, which was 2010, um, the, the very next year, 2011, uh, I had a head injury. I uh, accidentally walked into a concrete beam oh. and just had a severe concussion. And um, I was uh, I was sick for a week, and I was forgetting words. I couldn't speak. I was really, really worried about it. But I cleared up completely. I, I was fine afterward, and the only lasting after effect of it was that my vision improved. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I, I remember that because I, rem I, I remember being here uh, last time eight years ago and having pictures taken and I was wearing glasses because normally back then I wore glasses for distance. And then I had this head injury, my vision improved, I no longer wear glasses. And so that is typical of my life. When I write my autobiography, I'm going to call it always lucky. <laughs> I'm the guy who has a head injury and I end up better than before. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Yeah, yeah like and I, I, I didn't tell the optician about it because I, I didn't. I went for my next checkup on schedule, and I didn't say a word because I didn't want to prejudice her reaction. Yeah. And she did the test, and you know, with all those things that they put in front of your eyes, and she said, "No, you don't need glasses." And then she put the put the chart in my file and happened to see the old chart, and she couldn't believe it. She said, "What what happened?" And I told her, and she said. Um, it won't be your eye that changed. It'll be the vision center in your brain was somehow recalibrated by the blow. Wow. And so, you know, that is so typical of my life. When I went, to, when I emigrated to America, my first f four books, the first three years I lived in America, Bill Clinton was the president of the United States. Two weeks ago, he was sitting where you are. You know, this is typical of my life. Yeah. It's amazing. Thank well, you've, you've and worked thank for you it. all very much for it. Yeah, yeah, but you've worked for it. You've got the talent. That certainly looks lucky from the outside. Yeah, it's, it's pretty damn good from the inside, let me tell you. We're going to take audience questions, everybody, just while, and we've got microphones way up there, and yeah, I can see people. Just while we have people coming down to ask you something. Writers here, because you set a lot of the books, obviously, in the um, beguiling expanses of the United States or in their cities. Writers here so, say, if you're going to write a bestseller, you can't set it in New Zealand. Do you reckon that's true? You've got the Scandinavian example to counter that. What do you think about that? Yeah, I don't... I mean... Uh... It's not really that the reader has any problem with that kind of stuff. The reader is open to anywhere. And as you say, the Scandinavians um, or Maigret, Paris, you know, there's no particular reason why any one location will offend a reader at all. It's a slight circular argument because it hasn't happened yet. You know, there hasn't been a big, massive international bestseller set in Auckland. Therefore, publishers around the world say, well, there's never been a bestseller set in Auckland, so we're not going to publish your book. It's a circular argument. All it will take is one. And um, I mean, actually, there have been international books that have done really well um, that are based in New Zealand. There was, I can't remember the title of it or the author, but there was one set 
um, some guy had uh, was was living in a remote spot in New Zealand because he'd been a Japanese prisoner of war and he was all um, tormented or something. That that one did really well. And the the dramatic landscape around here, you could do an Alistair MacLean type book that involved the sea or something like that around New Zealand. So I think it's probably not true. Location really doesn't matter. It's all about the character and the story. But it, uh, and sadly, people from uh, regions that are underrepresented in fiction have that extra hurdle that you've got to convince the publisher that, yeah, this will be okay. Yeah. And if they took the chance, then the book competes with any other book on completely equal terms. I, I'm absolutely certain that, you know, if, uh, if, if a reader in a bookstore in New York um, picks up two alternative books, he's going to buy one, and one takes place in Sweden and one takes place in New Zealand. That is not going to factor into, into the purchasing decision. Ladies and gentlemen, um, that's us. Uh, Lee and David Baldarts, you will both be signing the same books <laughs> in the foyer afterwards. Uh, I'd like you to join me. It's been a real pleasure. I'm glad we've got you back after so long. It's a lovely hour. Great to hear you talk about the books. Great of you to be here. Would you please join me in thanking Lee Chan? Thank you. Thank you so much. You have been listening to a podcast from Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.
Do you want to see how much the audience knows yeah. about Jack Reacher? Yeah, let, well, let's see how much I know. <laughs> this, is, um, this is a variation on those pub quiz games where you, if you know, where you, you all stand up. Those who want to take part, you don't have to. And if you know the answer, if you're all standing, and I'll give you two alternatives. You can either put your hand up or you can leave your hand down. And when you get a question wrong, you sit down. And we're going to end up with somebody who wins some Jack Reacher books, hopefully signed by Lee. Who wants to have a go? Who's game? Okay, you've got to stand up. <laughs> okay, question, question number one. Uh, Jack Le Reacher travels light. He wears clothes, of course. After 9-11, he has to use an ATM card and photo ID, but he carries very little. Uh, he always carries something, though, one particular item. Is it hands up if you think it's a comb or keep your hands down if you think it's a toothbrush? Uh, it's a toothbrush, so anyone... There was one person who had their hand up. Anyone who had their hands up, um, please sit down. But nearly everybody got it right. Uh, second question, Jack Reacher is a man of considerable talents. But one is very special, and it's got nothing to do with how tough he is. Is it that he's able to see in low-light conditions that would be dark to you and me, hands up? Or keep your hands down if you think it's that he always knows what time it is. Oh, don't start quibbling. Uh, they know their reacher so far. They do. They're all going to get a signed book. No. <laughs> I've got tough questions coming up. Jack Reacher's parents, hands up, Josephine and Stan, hands down, Juliet and Roger. Oh, that's sorted a few out. It's Josephine and Stan. And Jack Reacher's brother, just anybody? Joe. <laughs> All right, now it's getting tough. What does the German shepherd dog die of in bad luck and trouble? Hands up if you think it's thirst, that the dog dies of thirst. If you're not thinking of thirst, if you're thinking poisoning, the dog dies of poisoning. Keep your hands down. Dog died of thirst. Hey, that was a good one. I mean, what I mean is my commiserations to everybody who got it wrong. Did the, uh, how many have we got still standing? Oh, a few. Did the sniper in one shot shoot from the highway behind the library? Hands up if you think it was there. Or keep your hands down if you think it was the parking building on First Street. It was the parking building on First Street. Well done. In the midnight line, this conversation takes place between Reacher and a drug dealer named Stackley. Stackley is holding a Colt 45 with two hands and it's pointed at the middle of Reacher's chest. Reacher says, don't you point the gun at me, at me, it'd be a serious mistake. How would it, man, says Stackley as he raises the Colt. How exactly is this a mistake? Reacher says, wait and see, nothing personal. What, <laughs> what happens to Stackley, hands up, if he steps on a syringe full of heroin injecting himself with a lethal dose, or hands down if he gets his head blown off. Uh, down, it was, he got his head blown off. <laughs> All right. He gets shot in the head by Rose Sanderson. Yeah. Right. Whew. How many have we got left? <laughs> 
No, only about 12. Okay, we'll do a couple more and then I'll have to do a tie break. In uh, all the Jack Reacher novels, has he ever actually shot? As in shot with a bullet. Raise your hands, yes, keep them down, no. Yes, he is shot uh, by Hook Hobie. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, that's right. And Tripwire. In the very first book, The Killing Floor, Jack is how long out of the army? Hands up, six months, hand down, hands down, one full year. Six months. Okay, now we are getting to it. We have about five or six people. I'm going to have to go to the tie-break questions. Uh, in the Midnight Line, Jack spies a West Point graduation ring in a pawn shop, which begins a rollicking, a rollicking adventure. What year was on the ring? <laughs> actually, you can sit down. Or no, actually, yeah, how am I going to do this? Because there's still about... <laughs> Sir, you first, what year? Sir. <laughs> Madam, in the middle at the top. Sir, next to next one along. Yeah, you with the orange T-shirt. And sir, you there. Sir. Is there any... Oh, over here. And... Who was the person who said the... Oh, sorry, you. <laughs> I'm finding extra ones now. <laughs> oh, for God's sake. <laughs> Are you sure you were standing up before? <laughs> okay, um, madam, you. Sir, and I can't even tell the gender. It's you in the darkness. <laughs> No, it's, you, oh, it's Madam, yes. Yes. 92. Oh, sorry, yeah, you. Thank God. <laughs> You've won. <laughs> Can you come and see me later? And I'll give you the books. And the answer was... 2005. 2005. Yeah. Very good. And thank you, everybody. That was tough. Had you ever done that before? Never done that before. And I got. They know their reacher. I got most of them right. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>